All right, welcome to another episode of Rosenballs. All right, it's the start of the season. Things are fresh. And, uh, you know, looking at last year, I would say, uh, made some big mistakes. Some things we were, we were right on, some things we were totally off on. I would say the biggest mistake, and I'll take the hit on this, was the Atlanta Hawks, right? It was really still still low on the Hawks. Um, obviously, they turned it around mid-year, so I wasn't necessarily super wrong. I thought they were going to sift around a low seed. That they emerged, right? That was a surprise team, I would say, of the season to make it a conference finals. And obviously, Phoenix as well, right? I was probably wrong on both. A lot of people were. Uh, but was right on the you know the Lakers as an example, kind of underachieving uh, as well. So this year, with the start of the year, we have to kind of caveat. Obviously, this is based on the first week, some of the early signs that we're seeing. And then the question becomes, what could change? Are these are there things that are still too early to tell? Right? Where where can things alter and things like that? What are some of the early signs? So I'm going to kind of just rapid fire some quick. Early signs, surprises, not surprises. Who looks like they could emerge and, and who could be the surprise team? So for me, <clears throat> right now, I, and again, I, I this is going to be a lot, a lot of conf, you know confirmation bias because these are opinions I had going into the year, and now they're confirmed in the first couple of weeks. Now that might seem outlandish, but uh, you know it's my podcast, so screw you. Uh, the first thing. The two surprise teams I see are actually out in the East. Um, and I've said this going into the season, I still think it's the case. I think the Charlotte Hornets and the Indiana Pacers are going to be the two surprise teams in the East. The reason why is as follows, right? So Charlotte has a super clean rotation. And, and like, the, it's the little moves they made that made them incrementally better at some key slots. I'll explain both. So first of all, they have a very clean rotation, meaning you want a rotation where the coach knows exactly the eight, nine man guys he's going to play. He doesn't have to figure it out. It's very obvious what it is on paper. And they all kind of mesh together. They all make sense, right? You have a combination of spacing and slashing inside and out. You could do pick and roll. You could run different styles. You could do up-tempo, the, the flexible defensively. Uh, there's really you know, little weak links regardless of the five-man unit you, you, you play. And I would say is like it becomes difficult for a coach, and I dealt with this in talking to coaches in the past. Um, I have a couple examples. When you're forced to play a certain tandem or a certain lineup because of either redundancy in that unit or major liabilities with that unit, right? So a good example is going to take everybody way back to a horrible team. Uh, so when Dwayne Casey took over the Toronto Raptors, um, you know, the first year, uh, they're coming off being the worst defensive team in the league. They were a horrible team. Uh, and they were led by uh, then-star Andrea Bargnani, right, former number one pick. And there was still a question, could Bargnani be this Dirk Nowitzki-type player and all that, right? But the problem with Bargnani was, uh, and even in his heyday, this was the case, he had... Now, you saw some upside there, right? Like, in that first half of the year, he played like an all-star, I would say. He shot 57% true shooting percentage on over 25% usage for a big, which is hard to do, um, and and was really putting up some some good scoring volume in in, in an efficient manner. 
the problem with Bergnani is actually a lot. There's a lot of problems. A, he, I mean, there's really no defense. I mean, he, his defense is horrific, right? So people are getting past him. They're switching on him. Can't rebound for lick. I don't know how you're that size. You go under the boards, you just literally cannot grab a rebound. And there's an art to rebounding. You got to use your butt in the right way. You know, get around players. You know, they, I don't know if he was taught it. Um, so that was frustrating. And by the way, the other thing that didn't really impact, but it's important to say, and this is, just goes about offensive players in general, uh, he was not a good passer. He was actually a black hole on offense. And that's not a, in the people, and this is not good either, because people use stereotypes all the time, and it's not good in life in general to use stereotypes. But Bargnani uh, was not your stereotypical, I would say, Euro big. Euro bigs tend to be very, uh, have high assist rates, right? You look at Gasol, the Gasol brothers, um, and, and, uh, and a bunch of others. They usually are fairly decent passers, Right, they're they usually pass happy, but they're not. I wouldn't call them black holes by any means. So Bergnani being a black hole was obviously a concern, um, and because of that, the Raptors at the time had to kind of create all these lineups. And I remember because I was helping them with it around Bargnani, Right, so you had to play Bargnani with Amir Johnson. You had to because Amir Johnson is the only the only big on the roster that's really defended the rim and could somewhat defend um, the the perimeter player on a pick and roll and the roll man. So to make up for Bergnani's efficiencies, you have to play Amir Johnson. He was better suited with Jose Calderon because, again, he's not passing. You need a unit with assist rate. So Calderon's running pick and rolls with everybody, making sure everyone's feeling good and assist rate. When he was in lineups with Kyle Lowry, who at the time, because there was a whole point guard dilemma, Lowry initially was actually coming off the bench. And Lowry was looking to score, looking to kind of um, drive some attention for himself. Uh, in that role, right? He was frustrated, and then they obviously traded him. It was a whole thing. But because that, now you got to play Calderon, and you got to play Amir Johnson. Uh, and DeRozan's got to get minutes, right? He's he's the young up-and-coming wing. And now you start getting into this jiu-jitsu um, of who am I playing when, and it just becomes super difficult for a coach. They can't even, like, do it based on the gameplay. They have to do it based on sort of who makes sense of what units, and it, it becomes a disaster, right? Unit optimization is very important, but, like, you want to have flexibility, obviously. You want to ride a hot hand or what have you. But Charlotte, Indiana, again, the beauty of those two teams is the flexibility in their rotations. So Charlotte, as an example, now rolls with, um, and when healthy, they roll with a clean 8-9 guys. And this is the thing, like... This is a key, key point. And, and I, I love yelling at bad GMing. And I love complaining about, like, oh, these GMs are horrible, blah, blah, blah. But, like, basketball, it's not just about, like, when you're constructing a team, it's not about individual talent always. That's one. Second, you got to look at both sides of the ball, right? So I'm going to compare two guys, and they're drastically different players. And it's not that, like, one's better than the other. Okay, this is important. This is an important point. The, when it comes to, like, certain, like, role players, right, it really depends on, like, who makes sense for your team, honestly. So, like, a Devontae, I'm going to compare Devontae Graham and Thomas Sadoransky. Two completely different players, but, again, they were kind of swapped for each other, right? They weren't, to an extent. I mean, in a three-way, but still, they were, you know, Sadoransky could have ended up in New Orleans, and Devontae Graham could have, you know, ended up, 
uh, elsewhere, right? So what's what's the what's the difference? Right? So what happened here? So here here's the point. Graham on, on looking if you just watch you've watched the eye test, you would clearly think Graham is the more talented player, right? He's shown flashes of, of great scoring prowess, great shooting prowess. And again, like Barnani, he had a stretch. Now it's been about two years, by the way, even longer, maybe two and a half years, where he was the lead man in Charlotte. They had some injuries. This is pre-ball. This is uh, with Rogier's first year, I want to say, right? I think led by a great game in MSG. This is like two and a half years ago. Could even be three. He had a great first half of the year in Charlotte. And it, like Barnani, actually, he, he had a 57% true shooting percentage, averaging over 20 a game, you know, um, showing you, you know, what, what he could be, okay? But, you know, then, obviously, second half rolls around, he goes back to the original role, and he's unable to sort of um, replicate that first half success, really any other time in his career for a long, sustainable period. But what Graham showed is, when he shows flashes, and again, like, this is an important thing. So, there's a couple of things with this. I do believe in today's NBA, especially in a playoff series where things are even tighter, you want to have at least three, four guys that um, can control the offense for a period of time. That you could run the offense through. So when a play breaks down, you know, and the ball ends up with uh, Graham, I feel better with the ball in his hands than Tom Sedaransky. Absolutely. With, you know, seven seconds left on the shot clock, make a play for me. And that happens a lot in the playoffs. That's an important role. And you need, again, at least three or four guys you can carry. You could run an offense through them for stretches. Stretch could be three, four plays down the stretch. That's like a Lou Williams-type role. Obviously, stretch could be bigger, where you're running them for three quarters. It's more of a superstar. There's stuff in between. But, like, those little stretches matter. I'll give you random examples. Um, in, two, in the 2009, I want to say, maybe 2000, maybe 2011. I'm going to get my years confused a little here. So Danny H made a drastic trade. He traded Nate Robinson for Stephon Marbury. He got Marbury, basically. Um, and the reason why that pickup was the Celtics needed someone who could create offense off the bench. And Marbury, for one of the games, I think it was against Orlando in the second round. I'm, I'm kind of riffing here a little bit. Um, had like a two-minute stretch where the Celtics were running pick and roll with Marbury. And Marbury had like a core eight points, you know, eight points in a row, six to eight points in a row. And it was a monumental stretch at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Got the Celtics over a gap, and they won the game. And I think Marbury was one of the reasons they won the game, and then they won the series. And I'm not going to negate those, like, important little pieces, right? So, you know, in the playoff series, every, you know, it's obviously mounted in a, in a larger frame, but it's important to have those guys. So I, I don't want to knock Graham. Graham is, is someone like that, right? But when it comes to evaluating Graham versus Sadoransky, they're different roles, Right, so Graham is good in what? He's good in that sixth man, maybe your fourth or fifth guy who could create offense. He's good in that role. But as you're constructing a team, that's a, that's like the the uh, the final you know the little cherry on the cupcake that you're doing 
you know, as you're creating a team, you don't look for that first, right? You first want to do is you want to build around either your talent or the guys you want to grow with. And it, and it might be two different things. I'll explain the nuance difference between, by the way, between both uh, Charlotte and Indiana. So for Charlotte, I mean, for, uh, sorry, for Charlotte and New Orleans, different situations. So in New Orleans, they're kind of jumping the gun a little bit, right? Like if I'm New Orleans, I'm trying to build around, like before I get to the third, fourth piece, let me make sure Zion and Ingram, you know, Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram are in position to be successful. Okay. Now, how do I do that? How do I ensure that? What are the things they need? So, like, look, uh, there's some weaknesses defensively there. Okay, I need some defenders around them. First, check. Second, I need spacing. All right? I I mean, it's bottom line. For them to be great, I need spacing. And then the third thing i got to answer eventually, honestly, is are they both best together? That's another whole thing. And if I had to prioritize one, which would it be? I'm not going to jump into Ingram trade ideas or anything like that yet. But, like, the problem that I had with New Orleans is they had it. First of all, Drew Holiday at point guard was the perfect point guard for those two players. Talk about a defender. He could be your third guy. He could orchestrate. The problem they had with Holiday was they had Ball um, who needed to play point guard, so they put Holiday at the two. And then they got, you know, just late picks for him. Like, they're not, they're not valuable. Like, with a late first, you're hoping, what, the guy's Nasir Little? Would you trade four Nasir Littles for Drew Holiday? No, you're probably going to get two players of, of that value. So that's already a train wreck right there. But they, they, they kind of airball their backcourt, right? Because then, they, fine, so Holiday's not going to work. But then Ball kind of worked too. He's getting a little bit better of a defender. Not great, but he's got size. He could space a little bit. Shooting's getting better. He's a willing passer. It could have worked. But no, you, you get rid of him too. For a point guard that makes less sense in Graham because he's a sixth man, which is not the role you need. And Graham is not, he's not a, regardless of his starter or not, he's hes someone who needs the ball and needs decent usage to be effective. So this was a, uh, in my opinion, a real, a real decent, um, you know, ball drop by New Orleans. And this is where it comes to Sadoransky. Sadoransky would have fit the bill. He would have fit the bill. Why? He's shown in Washington and in Chicago he could play point guard, particularly if he's an off-the-ball point guard. Your point guard does not always have to be John Stockton. These GMs have to stop it. Whenever the people are like looking at a point guard, they're like, well, they always compare him to like a Chris Paul, these traditional point guards, right? And not every team needs a traditional point guard who's going to run pick and roll. A lot of the offense sometimes does not run through the point guard, nor does it have to be. Okay? So there's there's really no... Um, there's no good reason for that, I would say. Which is a huge, huge problem. The office needs to be run through Zion and Ingram. 
So they have Sedaransky. Now they got some defense in the backcourt. Great. They got, you know, some good rooks. Trey Murphy. And, and then, uh, you know, the kill uh, Alexander Walker. Those guys work as guards. They have heart. You know, your guard rotation is looking pretty decent. With Murphy, your 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 uh, wing four rotation is looking pretty decent. And then they kind of messed up at center. That's another thing. Where they would have been better off if you're dealing Adams getting a spacing five. Like, and even Al Horford, honestly, that would have worked nicely. And you could say, like, yeah, but Celtics got it for Walker and that deal, blah, 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 blah. Fine. If you don't get, you know, him, that's okay. You get another spacer at that role. It would have at least made more sense. But, um, you know, look, they're going to run themselves out. And the issue there was, again, how they valued Graham versus Sadoransky. And it's not about who's better, who was the better fit. You didn't, you needed, they, they misassessed uh, so many things. First of all, you, it's, you know, you got to peel the onion. So the first onion is like, who am I building around? Great. So Zion and Ingram, fine. Who are the, what are the pieces that make most sense around them? What types of pieces? And then, and then assessing what those pieces are and, then, and those needs. So I, I compare it because uh, New Orleans did not do that in, the, in, the, in this sort of Graham, let's call it a graham Sedaransky swap. Charlotte did. So Charlotte recognized on the flip, this is what they recognize. This is the top they have. Like, who am I building around? I'm building around Ball, right? My, you know. Um, rookie of the year candidate could have, should have been rookie of the year. Um, do it all guy. I need spacing. I need athletes. How do, how does this work? Okay, great. What are the weak links? And then they just, they just fulfilled it, you know, in a clean manner. So they're like, okay, we don't need Devante Graham. If we have Terry Rozier, that's ridiculous. We have a backup combo guard who could shoot, right? Fine. Did, would I would have liked for them to keep Monk? I like Monk. But again, you don't need a bunch of small guards. And by the way, if I have a big point guard, I could at least play Rogier with him. But again, as we talked about, don't want to double down on small guards. Fine. This was a clean swap. So Senator, what Senator Ransky provides, he's a big guard now. He could play backup point guard. He could play with ball because he's pretty flexible position-wise. And now you have unit flexibility. You have a much better fit because now you got defense in your backcourt. And he didn't need Graham's shooting, even though he might be the better talent. And talent is a, I'm saying it loosely. Talent, I pick like, even though, like, you know, if I'm playing Rucker at Rucker Park or West 4th Street or whatever, and I've, I've, I got to win a game, but it's Graham or Thomas Sutterancy, I'm probably picking Devontae Graham because he's going to dribble down and hit a bunch of shots. Fine. But if I'm building a unit, this is a puzzle. Sonoransky is a much better piece for my puzzle. By the way, in both situations, he would have been. But no one in the world would ever take, no GM at least, is considering Graham over Sonoransky. And in fact, New Orleans had Sonoransky. Like, no, we need to up that. Let's get Graham. And they had it. You know what? They had it all along. They had the puzzle piece all along, and they just didn't get it. It's not always about who's more talented. Talent does not always win out. It's a combination of talent and fit. And what's not what's 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 less important is, you know, who's more talented, your sixth man or someone else's sixth man. What's more important because they're both kind of six men. What's far more important 
is ensuring you're getting the most out of Zion, who's got top 10 player potential, and Ingram, who could be a top 20, top 25 player in the league. If you max those guys, then it doesn't, then it's, it's far, far outweighs the increase in the sixth man. So Shaw will figure that out. They're going to get the most out of Ball now. And they are, by the way. Ball is going to give you, you know, he's averaging seven, like 17, 7, and 7. Like, great second-year numbers. Looking like a stud. And the fit around Ball is perfect. So they, that's not the that's not the only thing. The second thing is they, they uh, establish the chemistry with Bridges. So now they go, okay, Ball and Bridges work, right? This is a nice little piece. Okay. But Ball, Bridges, not a lot of spacing. And they pushed for Washington to play more small ball five, P.J. Washington. Jesus. Right, which is another another big piece. And and then, like, they realize, like, okay, there's a couple weak links at the five, right? Bismarck Biamba, does he work the best? You know, a lot of these are, are kind of unsure, right? So they... So they're really able to um, make a clean rotation there. And they're getting Plumley, and then doing the deal with the Knicks, and getting Kai Thomas. Now they have Athletic Five. You know, again, a lot of athletes going to work well with ball. You need your stability center. Plumlee works well. These, like, little incremental improvements really improve the roster. So their fives are set. They have P.J. Washington who can play a little small ball five if need be. They have Bridges who can play both forward slots. They still got Hayward coming back. Right. Uh, they got Rogier. They got Sadoransky. Now you have the makings of a really clean rotation. And, again, that's an up. these guys are upgrades from, like, your the twins on the team. Right, that played, um, which wasn't exactly ideal, um, and you know a lot of minutes to Biombo. You're starting improving these slots, so to get from Graham to Sadoransky is actually an improvement, and those minutes is like it's like twenty to thirty minutes a night, right? The Biombo, the center minutes, it's forty eight minutes, right? That's the overall center role is improving, um. And then just the cleaner guard and wing rotation is incremental improvements. So that's going to take Charlotte from, you know, who was sniffing with the plan and then until, you know, ball went down. So now maybe jumping the gun and being in that six to four range in the East. That's the first surprise. And it was a long winded thing, but I want to talk about Charlotte because I think they did a good job. The other team is Indiana. Let's talk about Indiana. So, not going to lie. I completely shat on Kevin Pritchard in the offseason. The reason why is I I, I like what Barkley said uh, the other night when he was interviewing uh, Julius Randle. Uh, and he, he likes Randle because Randle you know, takes accountability. That's, that's a real leader. And, and I agree. What makes up um, a good leader is, you know, accountability, self-awareness, 
you know, uh, Shaq made the line, which I agree, you know, pointing fingers and stuff like that. Like if you're, if you're the main superstar, uh, you know, you're driving the bus, right? So like, if your team doesn't win, the first person to look at is yourself. And like, look, maybe some guy didn't hit the big shot or whatever. You played your, your butt off, but like, you know, it is on you for, for, for better or worse, which is why we reward winning, uh, at least PR wise, um, you know, with, with the main guy, it's the person who's responsible, uh, for, for better or worse. So basketball is a team sport, but again, like they're, they're supposed to be the driver, not the coach. It's really, it really is the, the star player, right? Which is why, you know, the whole Embiid situation we don't have to get into, but again, like him throwing Simmons under the bus, not really a great sign of, of, of uh, player leadership, let alone what Doc did, which is another thing. Um, versus, I would say, very bench-like, LeBron. And I, I always bring up the example, I forget the year, but you know, now it's about 20, maybe it was 2019? No, it could have been 2019. 2018, possibly. When they lost the first game, um, Cleveland did against Golden State. LeBron had a fantastic game. George Hill goes to the line, misses two free throws. Uh, you know, they're down by one. Smith's got a chance after, off the rebound to, to put the put back. Doesn't really realize the situation. Dribbles it back out. Or it's a tie game, rather. Sorry, it's a tie game. Dribbles it back out. And then it goes to overtime and they lose an OT. Uh, but in the post-game news conference, right, LeBron um, didn't, you know, he had his players back. He didn't blame JR. Even though, I think it was, I forgot the name of the reporter, kept pushing him. Right, to try to get him to blame to Jr. Another situation he, he didn't address, and a lot of guys are like this. Westbrook stood up for Stephen Adams. I remember the post game, or like, are you getting enough from your other players? Blah 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 blah. blah. And, and Westbrook is, you know, not not having. He's, he's not going to try to get create infighting and make this a reality TV show, which a lot of times reporting does. I don't even know why I brought all that up, but um, it just shows you, you also obviously need that intangible in the locker room uh, when creating a good team. So, Indiana. Let's talk about Indiana. Um, so, what in, Indiana's real move, honestly, this is the way they went. So, I wasn't appreciative of what Pritchard was saying because he was blaming. He didn't take accountability. Oh, that was my point. As the GM and the moves and stuff like that, right? Now, I thought Indiana actually did a fantastic job in the moves they made. They just got a little unlucky uh, because they were looking good to start the year. They just need to get healthy. Um, and the particular moves were, uh, first of all, this is one of the, an old time fantastic trade. They traded Victor Oladipo basically for Karis LeVert. I mean, that is a home run. Oladipo might be out of the league in two years. He's not getting off Miami's bench. He got signed for a minimum. I mean, his value went way down. And Karis LeVert, uh, last year we were talking about him being, the main piece in the James Harden trade. I don't know how this whole thing happened. This is like horrible GMing. And I can't stress this enough. The fact that Houston trades Harden and doesn't even at least come back with Karis Levert, right? If they had Levert, Allen, and Dinwiddie and then moved the other two and got picks, fine. No, no, no. They have to get these really bad Brooklyn picks. And they ended up with, and then they move, and then they get a little depot, 
because he got a relationship with, with the coach, only to move him for Lele pick. The whole thing was just real, really not well done by Houston. Just, just, just diminishing value. It reminds me of when like Chicago, um, after they won the title in '98, was like, "All right, we're, we're just done." It doesn't mean you have to like leave all your talent for zero. They're like, "Here, Pippen, just go." Roy Rogers, sure, we'll take him. It's like, wait, 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 guys, guys, calm down here. Wait, what? We're taking who? Roy Rogers. And I get it's a sign of trade. I get it, but like, end up with something, right? Like, at least Cleveland got Lou all dang for LeBron, right? I mean, when LeBron left, they got the the cap space. They knew they didn't have a chance to keep him. Um. At least they got, like, a... Now, granted, Ding ended up sticking up the place and all that. Fine. But, like, at least end up with, like, an asset back. My God. This isn't, like, that complicated. But what Indiana has done... So, Pritchard, not, not accountable. Blaming the situation. But they've slowly picked up decent rotation pieces. Right? And Pritchard kept saying this. R5 is going to beat your two. And that's right. That's the model of Indiana. By the way, it's been the model of Indiana for years. Right? Even in the days of Reggie Miller. Right? Like, as, as much as we love Miller, um, historically and all that, he, most of the time, I'm just going to be honest here, he's like a five-time All-Star. You know, like, I, I, I think... He's looking. He looks great historically because of the PR. He's on TV a lot. He had the documentary, the Thirty for Thirty. Uh, everyone remembers the the moments against the Knicks. He's very clutch. All that, a lot of intangible stuff. But like toe to toe, this is gonna sound crazy. Did he have a better career than like Kyle Lowry? I mean, maybe his career is probably more comparable to like Steve Smith and Glenn Rice than it is to like I don't know. Anyone drastically better. So, Indiana's always done that model, right? R5 is going to beat your two. Okay? Fine. Great. R5 is going to beat your two. And, you know, they but they've done a good job. Again, like... They let McDermott go, fine, but they got Chris Duart, right? They got Brogdon. They got Justin Holiday, right? O'Shea Brissett, nice pickup. Second-round pick, not bad, okay? Um, you know, the Sabonis has been nicely improving. Now he's getting a little older. Miles Turner, okay. T.J. Warren, let's grab him on the cheap from Phoenix. Nice little two-way player, right? Let's get Levert in this lopsided deal that I just mentioned. Right, and now all of a sudden you're like, "Wait, hold on a second. They're getting incrementally better everywhere. This team is is pretty good. This is a nice, this is a nice team. Let's go through it. When healthy, when healthy, it's a big caveat, but still, look at this starting lineup: Brogdon, Lavert, Chris Duart, who right now might be your rookie of the year." All right? Sabonis Turner. That's your starting five. Off the bench, O'Shea Brissett has been playing better. Okay? If T.J. Warren is back, fantastic. Right? 
Goga. Hidden threes, taking names. Justin Holiday, as I mentioned, Spacer. Lamb, nice rotational talent. TJ McConnell, nice rotational talent. We're talking 11 deep here. And I'm probably missing a few. Hey, talk about Jakar Sampson. All right, guys, calm down, Jakar Sampson, please. But you're still, you're getting incrementally better everywhere. Indiana's issue is just health, honestly. It's just health. They haven't, they need these guys to, to get healthy, quite frankly. And then you'll see some, some you know, some interesting impact, for sure. For sure. And I'm betting on Indiana to get healthy. Like, they're eventually, it's eventually going to come together. Like, these guys don't have lingering problems, right? I think you have Brogdon, Levert, with Duart, and, they, and uh, Sabonis and Turner, and get Warren in there. They need all six of those guys. O'Shea Brissett would be nice. You know, Lamb Holiday, not as necessary, but it would be nice. That team is good. It's one of the better constructed teams in the East. People think, you know, it was, oh, Nate, was it good? No, no, no. It was injuries. Now, look, look, I'll say this. I'll preface this. And I mentioned this on the phone to a former coach the other night. I'm not going to mention the name. The other issue that happens uh, with GMing and stuff is you, you so you got to be, you got to find your problems early. This is just a case in life, right? Like if you see a problem, if you, first of all, you got to be able to recognize that you have a problem. You have to be self-aware, like this is an issue and you got to like solve it quickly, right? You can't think of loss aversion, all these psychological things. You got to solve it. So I always mention this example, you know, in the late 2000s, Golden State draft Steph Curry. In the first couple of years, you had a Steph Curry Monte Ellis backcourt. And it was very obvious from the observing view that long term that would not work. Why? Well, they both need the ball, they both need usage, and defensively, that's going to be bad, right? This was fairly easy to observe in the beginning. But because other teams in the NBA know you have a redundancy, right? They're not going to give you equal value for Monte Ellis. They won't. So the only way to, to really make a move is deal Ellis on 50 to 75 cents on the dollar. But again, by unloading Ellis, you're able to open up your roster a little bit, see what Curry can do. And again, this is the big key. Relieve that redundancy. That's the big thing. So, one of the big things, this is like one of the biggest mussers, which is less than in Hebrew, in NBA. What they, no one learns this issue from Golden State. This is why Golden State's, you know, this is one of the first moves they did that led to um, the them, them moving, up, moving up. So, you identify Curry's got potential. And you, you, you're like, Ellis is gone. So they got Bogut. Now, Bogut was injury-prone, but he filled a gap for them, filled a need. They needed defense. But, like, value for value, you sold Ellis on, like, 50 to 75 cents on the dollar. It's a great lesson. But by doing that, you opened up Curry. Curry becomes really good. And, you know, that's a, a huge deal. So, again, these lessons are not observed, learned, whatever. 
so much historically. And I, I'll, I'll bring up a couple examples. Now in the NBA, it's so obvious to recognize some redundancy. So, and I'm going to throw Indiana under the bus a little bit here. But, like, Cleveland. Cleveland's got a redundancy. Excuse me, they have Garland and Sexton. Okay? Obviously, they'd be better off moving off of Sexton. If they feel like Garland's got more potential, and Garland, by the way, we don't know yet. If he be, if he gave him full keys, that could be watching. I'm a huge Darius Garland fan. Okay, now, but again, if they recognize the problem early, they would have gotten a lot more value out of Sexton. So Sexton, maybe they get eighty cents on the dollar if they moved him two years ago. Last year, sixty. Now it's going to be thirty, forty. Sexton's value went way down, especially after um, it was Chris Mannix throughout the tweets about uh, the scouts take on Sexton calling him an a-hole only cares about stats and, and all this real, real um, backlash PR stuff that really is going to hurt him potentially. It could be true, but Sexton now is more pegged in the Devante Graham, Reggie Jackson, six man role type player. He gets some offense off the bench and his value is diminished, but they're still hanging on to him for whatever reason. And again, it doesn't even mean that you hang on to the player. Also maybe change your unit. Maybe if Sexton becomes sixth man, it makes sense. But again, that's also tough because he was now brought up to be this like pseudo all star, and he's still on the team. That's also tough to do. So I appreciate that. But again, that probably they're probably better off if they do that too. But the longer it takes Cleveland to recognize that problem, the more long term issues they're going to have because they're not going to get value from Sexton. And eventually, here's what's going to happen. Sexton's value is going to be so diminished, they're going to like either moving him at the deadline for like a future late first or second rounder, or he's just going to leave in free agency, and, that, and they got nothing. And they're back in square one. And it's the GM's fault. It really is. They have to be ahead of that curve. Right? And by the way, I'm going to just bash Cleveland for a second. They have a flip redundancy that everyone talks about, which is the bigs. Right? And again, this could be solved too. If you know you're going to sign Jared Allen, why are you drafting Mobley? I like Mobley a lot. <clears throat> but if he became available at the at the draft day, you got to figure what can I get for him? Right? Fine. But if you if you really like Mobley, great. Keep Mobley. But then don't sign, don't resign Jared Allen. Then do another move or do a sign and trade or get some value out of it or sign someone else. Overpay for a wing with spacing, whatever. But that creates more redundancy on the roster. And they double down with Lori Markin and whatever. It's a whole thing. Um, whereas if you literally just like, if you remove, this is going to sound crazy. If you removed Allen and his salary, Sexton and his salary, you're going to get, um, you're going to squeeze out, and this is a key, more value. And you're going to see a lot more from, Mobley, Markinen, and Garland. And you're going to see, like, oh, these guys, um, are these my, my long-term guys? And they might be. But now it's meshed up. It's meshed and messed. And you're putting the coach in a difficult spot and all that. So Indiana, why did I bring Indiana? Indiana's got redundancies with their bigs, and, and people keep matching you. Turner and Sabonis. It's very hard in the NBA to play lineups with two legit bigs. It just is, right? Now, again, Indiana could solve it in two ways. And I think there, there is 
a couple solves. One is, unfortunately, similar to the Alice situation. So you're not going to get even value for Sabonis for a bunch of reasons. First, it's just scarcity of resources. As talented as Sabonis is, no one needs a center. Most teams don't really need a center. They don't, right? The second, and that's really a big thing, that's it, right? So because of that, like, you're going to find a, a tough team to, to do a deal with. I'm sure there's ones out there that we could think of, but, like, thinking out loud, like, it, it's tough. The first, that's the first thing. Right, so you got to be, you got to think outside the box if you're in Indiana. The other thing you could do is just, you know, do some unit changes, right? So make sure again, their turn and Sabonis could play together in moments for sure. You don't want to do it too much. So okay, so you make Sabonis, who's played sixth man really well. You can run an offense through him. He could control the second unit, and you make him sixth man, and then you move either Warren or Brissett as a small ball four, which is a role they would excel in in my opinion. And now you have a more sensible rotation ensuring, um, you know, everybody in the units makes sense. So all of that is uh, theoretically feasible, right? But, like, here's... So then, so how does this apply to, to now? Like, what are you getting for Sabonis, right? So, like, look, again, if I'm um, Indiana, my goal is to get a wing... For Sabonis, you know, that I need to play. And I'll I'll give you some example. I'm not saying these teams do these deals, but some of the guys that look at, so you got to like look back, like, okay, well, you know, who's going to take a risk on Sabonis? Probably a team that that needs a big, okay? And that uh, needs to take a risk um, and is willing to jeopardize fit for talent to an extent because they need to take that risk. So for me, like, I'll give you, I'll throw one team. I'm not saying this is the deal, but like, Clippers just, I don't know why, they just jumped out at me. And if you could get a guy like Terrence Mann and take a shot at him for Sabonis, probably, probably a deal I'm doing. Now, am I overhyping Mann? Maybe. Um, but they need a big. I was thinking Boston before the season started now, it doesn't make sense because they have Robert Williams, they got Horford, they got, you know, enough. There could be a role there, but nah. Um, Clippers, the Clippers stand out. Probably, you need a team that needs a center that can get an improvement in center, right? And again, maybe you get a Baca in that deal. You, you take a shot at him. He's been injured. Who knows? So a Baca and, and, and Man for, I don't know, I'm making this up, Sabonis and Holiday, Sabonis and Lamb, whatever. And if you're the Clippers, you're like, okay, I kind of have a five-man unit that contains Sabonis, Leonard, and George when all healthy. I got a shot in the West. And if you're the Pacers... Getting Terrence Mann is a nice upgrade for your full rotation. But in general, they, you know, they need to think that way. And, and again, they would not do that deal. And the fans, Indiana fans would be initially upset. But again, it, I agree. It's not a dollar-for-dollar dollar deal. You're not getting even value for Sabonis. you got to stop thinking that way. Because there's some redundancy. And the same applies. Oh, let's say Turner's the guy you want to move. Okay. Well, again, you're not going to get even for even. There's got to be a Turner deal out there. It's, it's just not going to be an even for even move. And that, that that's the problem, right? That's sort of, uh, that's sort of the, big, the big issue there. But, like, again, Indiana and Charlotte, 
I like it for different reasons, quite frankly. So, again, like, Charlotte, I like. They actually did the moves. They make sense. All right, well, now let's see what's going to happen. And then 